Okay, where we are, we're at the midpoint of the tribulation and into the second half of it. I'm going to start reading with verse 15, Matthew chapter 24. We've been zeroing in on Matthew 24. Remember, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all contain uh, parts of the Olivet Discourse. Only Luke talks about uh, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Remember, there were, th there were three questions that are actually two questions. When shall these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? To the Jewish mind, the coming of their Messiah and the end of the age were the same time frame. So it's basically, it's phrased as three questions in most English translations, but in the, the Greek, the last two questions are connected together. So it's really one question with two parts to it. So we're really not going to quibble whether somebody says there's two questions or three questions uh, there. Right. So we've worked up to verse 15, and it says, So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Now, from our study in Daniel, we saw together that this happens at what point? At the midpoint of the tribulation. All right. The Antichrist, the coming prince, the beast, all referring to the same individual, signs a treaty with Israel. Now, whether Israel signs it willingly or under duress, we don't know. We just know that there's a peace treaty that they sign. That's a seven-year peace treaty. And at the midpoint uh, of that treaty, three and a half years, referred to different ways in the Scriptures. It's referred to as 1,260 days. It's referred to as a time, times, and half a time. It's referred to as 42 months. But at the midpoint of the tribulation period, he breaks that treaty. And so as we read Jesus talking about the abomination of desolation, we know timing-wise when this occurs. It says, when he see, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. So, you know, at that midpoint, this is like a message, and I'm sure it's a message that is going to be preached in the city of Jerusalem. You know, hey guys, when you see the abomination of desolation, what are they to do? You better get out of here. And you better not what? You don't dally, you don't delay, you get out of town as fast as you can get out of town. If you're outside the city working in the fields and you hear this has happened, what? Don't go back to your home. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, pray that this doesn't happen on the Sabbath day, because the Sabbath day, if they're followers of the Sabbath, they can only travel so far on the Sabbath day. Or winter, because in winter it's the rainy season, it'll make it more difficult for them to travel the, the spaces that they need to travel. Now, most Bible teachers believe that they're going to go to Petra, and that that is where they will flee to, and that God will, we know from the book of Revelation that God supernaturally protects them because the Antichrist is going to come after them, wanting to destroy them. Then we come to verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. 
but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So now we have an interpretive problem here. We have an issue to deal with. Well, the elect, within the context of Matthew 24, the elect there is referring to the saved Jewish people. That's how that term is being used through Matthew 24. Now, it's used in different ways throughout the scriptures, but the elect talked about in Matthew 24 are those who are saved during the tribulation period. So what's our problem? Okay. All right. So if those days have not been cut short... What days? All right, the days of the tribulation period. If God did not cut them short, nobody would live through it. I want you to understand, during the course of the tribulation period, a large portion of the world's population is going to be wiped out. We know among the Jewish people that two-thirds of them are going to be wiped out. We know that in the judgments right after the, in the first part of the tribulation, a quarter of the world's population is going to be wiped out. So these are going to be terrible times. And so we're being told, if these days were not cut short, all of humanity would perish on the earth underneath the judgment of God that is coming. So, does this mean that the seven years is shortened from seven years to less than seven years? Does this, because we are are told once again Uh, in passages that it's 1,260 days, three and a half years. And so there there are those who believe uh, that, and in particular, uh, some of the followers of what's called the pre-wrath view of the rapture believe that these days are less than the, the actual three and a half years, but God has cut them short. Now, also, we face the problem that will be put to us. I thought you guys were literalists. I thought that you believed that when the Bible said something, it is to be taken literally. So what gives you the license to come to this passage and to say... It says if the days were not cut short, so how can you say those days are not cut short when that's what the passage actually says? So you see see the problem here? You see the criticism that is going to be leveled. Because one of the things that is leveled at those of us who take a consistent, literal translation of the Bible is you guys pick and choose. You pick and choose what parts you want to take literally, and then the parts that don't fit nice into your scheme, you say, we can't take that literally, and it can't mean what it says. And we have to be careful because sometimes that's a valid criticism. Sometimes there are guys who, that's literal, that's literal, that literal, that doesn't sit in my scheme, so that must be symbolic. But I don't think that's a choice that we have to make in this particular passage, even though we, we have to admit that it would seem, just reading it on surface value, it's saying what? That it's less than the three and a half years. The problem we have, we have, we have several different problems that we have to deal with as we come to this, and this is just, we're talking about how to interpret the scriptures now and how to do a consistent literal translation. Okay, so we start, and I teach this in my, when I teach in the theology class, that we want a biblical 
theology. And from that biblical theology, we develop a systematic theology. You say, now what's the difference? Isn't all scripture biblical theology? Well, it can be, but biblical theology is a term that is used for a type, a way of doing theology. And that is this. Biblical theology says we don't start with a systematized approach to the scriptures. We go directly to the passage and we interpret the passage in front of us. And from that, we determine what is this passage teaching us. So let's just say we're doing biblical theology here. We're coming to Matthew 24. If we just take Matthew 24 in and of itself, what is the conclusion we would come to? If you just if pretend for a moment that the only book that you have in your Bible is the book of Matthew. You have no other book in the Bible but the book of Matthew. That's all you have. And you come to Matthew chapter 24 and you're reading it. First of all, based on Matthew 24 itself, can you say that the tribulation is seven years long? No, you can't. Because, no, I, yes. So, Matthew 24 by itself does not say that there's a tribulation period that's seven years long. Matthew 24 by itself says nothing about the abomination of desolation occurring at the midpoint of the tribulation period. So if we are strictly studying, and this is how biblical theology works, we take the passage, we exegete the passage, we determine what is the passage saying. So our observations would be, well, there's an abomination of desolation. Following the abomination of desolation, we have these events occurring, and it says that these events, if they were not cut short, what would happen? All right. So we would say, whatever this period is, it's being cut short, or else everyone would die. But Matthew is not the only book we have in the Bible, is it? So immediately, to understand this, which is the first book that you would go to? We're just dealing with this problem here in Matthew 24. Go to the book of Daniel, because the book of Daniel is mentioned here, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So we would go back to Daniel, and we would study Daniel, and from Daniel we would determine what? What could we determine from the book of Daniel? We could determine from the book of Daniel... That, as we, that there is going to be a peace treaty that is signed that is going to be from the other clues in the book of Daniel that is going to be a seven years in length and that at the middle point of that, what's going to happen? The abomination of desolation and the treaty is going to be broken. So we know now just from Matthew and Daniel that we have the abomination of desolation happening at the midpoint of a seven-year period, which, which is equally divided into two periods of the same length of time. Okay, based on that now, where else would we go? Okay, is there anywhere else in the Bible that speaks of these days? And the other place in the Bible that speaks of these days is in the book of Revelation. So now we have to take the statements from the book of Revelation and we put these all together. That's how we arrive at a systematized theology. We study each of the passages just based on what the passages themselves tell us. We exegete what it says, and then we put our conclusions together, 
And by putting them together, what is it going to force us to do? It's going to force us to deal with this problem, right? Because we know, and let's just follow through with it in our notes. What does it mean to cut short the days of the tribulation period? Does this verse mean that the last half of the tribulation period will be less than the 1,260 days prophesied in Revelation 11.3 and in 12.6? So put your finger here in Matthew 24 and go over to Revelation 11.3. Verse, Revelation 11.3 says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Okay, so the period is described as 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, or which is... 42 months. But here's a problem. Which part of the tribulation period is it referring to that these two guys are prophesying? Not the last half, but the first half. Right? Okay. Then, how can we say that the last half is not going to be cut short. Now think. Put on your thinking cap. How would, and and these are sometimes, you know, the the things in the scriptures. Jesus told us that one of the ways we interpret scripture is by doing what? Comparing scripture with scripture. Okay. Okay. Wayne, you got a possible solution for us? No, just a thought. <laughs> okay. Perhaps the first three and a half years, and uh, maybe in the beginning, uh, the tribulation period was supposed to last longer than seven years. And God decided that if he did that, there wouldn't be anybody left, so he shortened it. <laughs> Okay, that's a possible solution to it, but that certainly would have had to have happened uh, before the writing of the, the book of Daniel. And the problem that we have is that Daniel says the abomination of the desolation takes place when? At the midpoint. So if we're talking about it being shortened, if the last half of the tribulation is shortened, is it then the midpoint of this period? No. So that's, that's the relevance of 1,260 days is we know that the 1,260 days is referring to the first half of the tribulation period and that it is 1,260 days. So if something is happening in the middle of it, the second half has to be what? 1,260 days. Plus, and I'll get your question in just a second. We also have bearing upon this Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. It says, and the woman, and that's a, that's a reference to Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for how long? And what period is this referring to? This is referring to the second half. So from Revelation, we have very clearly from these two passages, 
we can say the first half of the tribulation is how long? Which is how long? Or? And the second half of the tribulation is what? Or? Or? Okay, so how are the days cut short? Okay, Jonathan? Yeah, well that, well, that has no bearing on it. Because this is, this, is, this is for the Jews, so that's why they use a Jewish calendar and not the solar calendar that we use. Okay. Excellent question. How do we know that? Now, on one end, we can say, well, we probably don't know that for sure. On the other hand, we would say, why would a measure of time that is consistently used in every other passage referring to the first half and the second half be used differently here? That, that would be the argument coming back. Is it possible? I think it's possible. Is it probable? Probably not. Because consistently it's divided up with this time period referring to either the first half or the second half. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. So you just putting those facts together, we still come out to. Also, what's something else we could say? This way is argument, and I just throw this out to be thinking. Which book was written first, Matthew or the Book of Revelation? So Matthew is written first. John writing after Matthew. Is, was written is saying the length of time is how long? 1,260 days. So we can rest assured that time frame has not changed going back to Daniel. All right, Steve, did you have a question, comment, or? All right, exactly. And I think that's the key to the passage. Let's go on. The word in Greek used here has the core meaning to cut off. The tense of the verb refers to something that was determined in the past. So the tense of the verb is saying something was term, determined in the past that these days needed to be cut off. The cutting short of these days was determined by God in eternity past. God determined that there would be a specific time of the tribulation rather than it continuing indefinitely. God knew that if the judgments kept coming, that no one would live through the tribulation period. So part of this is, and this is where we have to be careful at times, that we don't base our interpretations just on our English translation of the Bible, but that we understand the, the meanings, because sometimes the meanings of the Greek words, you know, we're going from one language to another. So the days basically are not being cut short, they're being what? Cut off, which means what? There's going to be a determined date. This period will only last this long. Because God knew, and as you study the judgments in the book of Revelation, what happens with them as you keep going along? They get worse and worse and worse. And if that pattern continued on, 
all of mankind would be wiped out. So that's the answer to someone that says, well, what does it mean that these days are cut short? They're cut short in the sense that if they went on without end, no flesh would survive. Now, are you with me on that? Because this is something that people will ask you about, make comments about if, they're, if they believe another system of interpreting this passage. And they'll think they have us by saying, hey, there you go, gotcha. Well, no, you really don't have us. And it's not about us trying to catch someone. It's about us trying to say, what does the Bible teach? And understanding. Okay. In verses 23 to 26, let's read those. I'd help if I get in the right book now. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand... So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. All right, Jesus warns in verses 23 to 26 that there will be false sightings and reports of his appearing. Antichrist wants to deceive the followers of Messiah to entice them to come out of hiding. Verse 24 indicates that the elect is not deceived. So those who are followers of the Messiah will not be deceived. But what does it also tell us? These arguments are, these signs are going to be so persuasive that if it were possible, just based on human reason, human thought, you would look at these and say, yeah, everybody would believe what they're being told. So that's why Matthew says, if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived, but God is going to do what to those who follow him? He's going to protect them and keep them safe. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 to 12 points out the non-elect will be deceived. Let's go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to look at verses 8 to 12. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 3 so we get the context. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Remember, someone has written a message to the Thessalonians saying that the day of the Lord has already begun, that Jesus has returned, and they missed the rapture, and they were left behind. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, what is that event? 
That's the abomination of desolation. He proclaims himself to be God in the temple. So that's what Paul is talking about here. Sue. He's going to proclaim himself to be the great God. Now, if we look at parallels, think back to the, the book of Daniel. What did Nebuchadnezzar decide? That he was going to be the God of gods. Remember, you know, he built that image of gold that represented Babylon. It's going to be the same sort of thing. Doesn't mean that, you know, people all over the world will worship this guy, but it doesn't mean every single one is going to. But they, they, this is going to be, you know, he's proclaiming himself to be a God that needs to be worshipped. Do you not remember... Paul says, that when I was still with you, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. Paul's saying, I told you all about this, and I told you what's restraining him. Well, Paul, why didn't you repeat yourself here and make it real clear? <laughs> For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do, do so until he is out of the way. Now, most conservative Bible teachers who take a futurist view of the scriptures would view the he that is there being talked about as the Holy Spirit. And then the lawless one will be revealed. Please note here, anybody that goes around telling you they know who the Antichrist is and who he is, he is not going to be known until what? The Spirit of God is taken out of the way. I, I wish some of our Bible teaching friends would realize they're not going to be able to identify him and that they would stop speculating on who he is. If you go back to World War II, there were people speculating it was Hitler. Then it was Mussolini because he was from Italy and part of the Roman Empire. Uh, John F. Kennedy has been accused of being the Antichrist. Uh, now, he got shot in the head. We know the Antichrist is going to have a wound in the head. So there were people expecting John F. Kennedy to be resurrected. Uh, and to, uh, Henry Kissinger, because he's Jewish, and people believe that the, some people believe that the Antichrist is going to be Jewish. So he has been identified as being the Antichrist. Uh, Obama has been accused of being the Antichrist. George W. Bush has been accused of being the Antichrist. Uh, no one's going to know who the Antichrist is until what occurs. Until the Holy Spirit is taken out of the, the way. And I just think it puts egg on the face of all of us who take futuristic views when people go out on a limb and start speculating on something like this. Okay, so. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. That's how we know it's the Antichrist being referred to, because how is he going to be destroyed? By Jesus at his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, because of this, because of what? Because they chose not to believe the truth. God sends them a strong delusion 
so that they may believe what is false. Remember, we were just talking about the Matthew talks about that if it were possible, what would happen? The very elect would be deceived. Those who are lost are going to believe the things that they see because on top of everything else, because they have rejected Christ, God is going to send them a strong delusion. Now you say, well, what does that mean? Well, I think we have an illustration of that back in the Old Testament. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then what did God do? God hardened his heart. People here have rejected, have known the truth, rejected it, and because they love their sin so much, they refuse to get saved, so God is going to send them a delusion so that they will not get saved. Yeah, let me finish this. Okay. So that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay. Um, in Romans it talks about God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Right. Was that different from this, from the strong delusion at that time? Yeah, I, I think... That it's, it's speaking of the same. All right, the question was, in Romans, it talks about God gives certain people over to a reprobate mind. And, that. and so I think it's the same sort of thing. Different language used there to describe it because of different time periods and things that are going on. But the principle is the same. Whether we're looking at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, whether we're looking at God letting people go, where people say, I'm going to go this way, go this way, go this way, where God just says, okay, if that's how you want to go, then go. And he lets them go to that. Here, God sends them a delusion so that they will not believe the truth. Now, this doesn't relate to everyone on the face of the earth. Because you'll sometimes hear guys get a little wrapped up in this passage and say, nobody's going to get saved during the tribulation period. Well, the ones who say that haven't studied the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation tells us there's going to be not only, we know the whole Jewish nation is going to be saved in a day, but we move beyond that. There's a great multitude that come out of the tribulation period, but it's very difficult for them to believe and then be wiped out. But there are people who have made, uh, for instance, I remember a guy saying to me uh, once, he was lost. He was coming to church, hearing the word of God preached, and not long after I had preached on a rapture passage or something, he said to me, Butch, I just want you to know that if the rapture occurs and my wife and kids are taken and you disappear, and your family disappears. And he mentioned another family in the church, and they're all gone. He says, then I'll believe. And I said to him, no, you won't. Because I think on the basis of this passage, if that's what you're counting on, you won't believe because God is going to have you believe the lie, whatever it is that the Antichrist is selling. Now, fortunately, that man came to Christ. And so, uh, which, was, which was good. Okay, so we put this together. Just, we're under false Christs and false prophets. Just as there are two true prophets who prepare the way for the true Messiah, so also Satan will have false prophets to prepare the way for his false Messiah, also known as the Antichrist. In fact... It is often said that the term Antichrist only appears in 1 John. That's true. This is true. However, the use of false Christs in verse 24, back in Matthew, is similar to the language for Antichrist in 1 John. Robert Goffett says, from the word false Christ being equivalent to antichrist, we see the meaning of the preposition anti. 
By Antichrist, it is not meant one in opposition to Christ, but a false Messiah resembling the true. Now, let me explain that to you. The word for anti can have the meaning of being against, but it also can carry the connotation it's against by replacing. And that's what the Antichrist is doing. It's not that he's just against the true Messiah. He wants to be worshipped as God, as the Messiah. So he is anti in that he's against, but he's against by taking the place of Messiah. This is expounded upon in Revelation 13, where the first part of the chapter describes the first beast or the Antichrist, while the second part explains the role of the false prophet. Here we see the traditional marriage of religion being used to support the political. Beware of that. Can I say? That's a true thing. People trying to marry together religion and politics. It is the false prophet who uses his religious office to advocate loyalty to the beast and to take his mark of allegiance on the right hand or forehead. This is why Jesus warns of false signs and wonders in Matthew 24. The false Christ clearly is a reference to the Antichrist, who is also known as the beast in Daniel and Revelation, the man of sin, and the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. The reference to false prophets would certainly include the false prophet of Revelation chapter 13, 11 to 18. Revelation 19.20 summarizes the career and destiny of the false prophet as follows. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Yes. All right, the false signs and wonders. And here's another thing we have to decide what it means. Here we have the same words, great signs and wonders, that are used to describe the miracles of Christ and his apostles. However, these works are performed by false prophets and false messiahs. Does this mean that Satan is merely deceptive in that, number one, he makes men think they see a genuine miracle. Or should this be understood as option number two, happenings that cannot be understood on the basis of merely human powers. So, you know, we know that the, the signs that are done are lying signs and wonders. So are they true signs and wonders? Or do they just appear to be signs and wonders? Sort of, you know, like a magician doing things and you would see. Uh, so we've got to make a, you know, people have to make a choice. What is being spoken of here? Now, these particular notes are from Thomas Ice. And so he's stating his opinion here. He says, I prefer the second view that they are genuine miracles. I favor that view because every time there are statements about false miracles, the language used is that they actually do these things as we have in this passage. will show great signs and wonders. I don't know of an instance where the language of appearance is used to describe these miracles. In other words, the language in the scriptures don't say, it appears that he does a miracle. They are called signs and miracles. In other words, if they were just tricking people into thinking that they were doing miracles with smoke and mirrors, it would seem to me that the scripture would have used language that indicates this. Instead, it uses words and phrases that say they are actually doing these things. For example, look at some of the satanic miracles performed by the false prophet in Revelation 13. 
He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who has had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. These are the words of actual events, not the slight of hand. Yeah, it could be. And there's different, you know, interpretations of what happened there in Egypt. Because there, if you remember, the magicians and that were able to duplicate most, or at least the first miracles that Moses was performing. Now, whether they were actually duplicating it or appearing to do it, we don't know. So, you know, either way, I don't know whether this, it would... It would seem, and I bounce back and forth on my view on this, depending on what day of the week it is, and uh, reading this, whether they're actually performing miracles or whether it is the appearance of miracles. I would say I'm not going to be dogmatic on it, but I, I tend to believe they are real false miracles and not just a magician's trick or an appearance. And so, you know, we need to be careful in that we are not swayed by just what we see. I guess it comes down to how much you trust your FBI. <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw it, so therefore it's true. I've had people tell me, like, in a different realm, like people in the world who, you know, are, are faith healers. Well, they said, well, you know, I have a relative is sick. And if I could take that relative to him and if he could heal them, then I would believe what they are, are saying. We don't believe based on that. No. I mean, I, I th remember this about Satan. Satan is not original. He is the great counterfeiter. Whatever God has, Satan wants his version of that. And so he tries to imitate God. Even think back. I'm going to put my throne where your throne is. So he's the counterfeiter. It appears that God grants temporary power to these false prophets and messiahs so that they will be used of God to attract all unbelievers to themselves in unbelief. That is what is meant in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 to 12, when it says, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not love the truth so as to be saved. Paul tells us the reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. However, his elect will not be deceived, because Jesus has warned them in advance to watch out 
for these false miracles. After the warning about false Christs and false miracles and sign, Jesus informs those living during the tribulation that when he returns, it will be in such a public way that there will be no doubt. It will be like lightning shining in the sky. Christ's return will be sudden and visible. Now remember, he's just talked about there are going to be those saying Christ is here, Christ is there, Christ is not. Don't fall for it, he says. In verse 28... All right, let's pick up with verse 27. It says, So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying, they're going to tell you I'm here, I'm there everywhere, don't believe it. The sign that you're going to see is like the lightning in the sky. And lightning in the sky, you see it and you know it, right? Everybody can see it. Uh, verse 28 gives a word picture of this. In verses 29 to 31, we have the, great, we have the events at the end of the tribulation period. We're now wrapping up that last three and a half years. The word for immediately means straightway, at once, directly. If you remember, one of the original questions that the disciples asked Jesus at the beginning of his discourse was, what will be the sign of your coming? He has been answering the question since verse 23. So everything that's happening in the last half of the tribulation is doing what? It's a sign of his coming. Having spoken of his coming in verse 27, Jesus now builds upon his previous point that he will not arrive clandestinely. That's not how you say it, clandestinely. He will not arrive clandestinely, but his return will be a clear public event that will take place suddenly, just such a glorious appearing is exactly what is described in verses 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now so let's compare that with the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is not something that the world sees. But the return to the earth, everybody on the earth is going to see him coming. Now, he talks about the sun, moon, and stars in verses 29 and 30. It says, Matthew 24, verse 29, is not a new revelation by our Lord. Old Testament passages like Isaiah 13 and Joel 2 and chapter 3 also reference the blackout and light show that will occur immediately after the tribulation in preparation for Christ's second coming, as noted in Matthew 24, 30. These Old Testament passages refer to the same future events that Christ describes in verse 29. In conjunction with the return of Jesus, Israel will be rescued from her tribulation by the Lord himself. Verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. We see the theme of rescue associated with the Lord's return, reinforced from the context of Old Testament passages, especially Joel 2, 3, uh, in the verses mentioned there. 
It is clear that our Lord has quoted part of his declaration about the sun and moon in Matthew 24, 29. From, I'm going to skip over it because I just read it. From Joel 2.31. Both are speaking of the same time and events, the time immediately following the tribulation in conjunction with Christ's return. Thus, it is interesting to take note of Joel 3, verses 1 to 2, which provides a time text saying that the blackout will occur in those days and at that time. In conjunction with this is described a time when the Lord will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Not judgment, but deliverance, as in Matthew 24. This event is said to be at a time when the Lord will gather all the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat, just north of Jerusalem. Further, it will be a time in which Israel will have been regathered from among the nations. This will be the time in which the sun and moon will be darkened. Verse 29 uses four descriptive phrases. The sun is darkened, the moon not reflecting light, stars fall from the sky, that should be fall, not all, and powers of the heavens will be shaken. The powers of the heaven appear to be the sun, moon, and stars. Luke 21, verses 25 to 26 says, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress in nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Luke is the only account that calls this a sign. Supernatural events in the sky and on the earth will be part of Christ's return to the earth. In Matthew 24:30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. The sign and the coming of Christ are separate events, very closely related to one another, but they're separate events. They're not one and the same. The sign is immediately followed by Christ's return. It appears that the shaking of the heavens will result in a blackout in the area around Jerusalem, followed by the sign. Some believe the sign will be the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. We have seen up to this point that God is preparing the cosmic stage to showcase the most spectacular event in human history, the glorious return of Jesus Christ to planet Earth to reign for a thousand years. First, this will occur after the events of the tribulation. Secondly, it will interrupt the campaign of Armageddon. Third, God will darken the sky by causing the sun, moon, and stars to cease shining. Fourth, in the midst of this blackened background, the sign of the Son of Man will burst forth in brilliant light and glory. Now just think about that for a second. Going from complete blackness to the glory of God shining in the skies. Finally, then and only then, will the stage be set for Jesus to return to planet Earth, to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. It is within this scenario of events that Jesus says, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Verse 31 tells us that at this time, the regathering of Israel in belief is accomplished by the agency of the angels. A great trumpet sounds, and Israel is regathered from around the world. So we... now putting this together with the passage in Zechariah that they are going to see the Messiah coming. The Messiah is coming in response to the people of Israel crying out for the Messiah to come. All of this working together. Okay, questions? Yes.
Richenbaum and David Germer. And to cut off, they, I don't remember if it was both or one, and it made sense to me, indicated that the days will be short as we not 24 hour days. But you still have that number of days. You know, because of all, look at all the dents that are going on anyway. I don't know. Uh, I I prefer. <laughs> well, it, it's not my version of this. Uh, by the way, I, I, it's just now we're going to get into. I know why Frutenbaum and Jeremiah are, if, if they both, and I don't know that that's their view. I haven't looked at what their view are of that. I can look up what Frutenbaum, if there's a divergent view out there, it's probably Frutenbaum who holds it. Because, you know, I love, I love Frutenbaum, but Frutenbaum interprets everything in light of what the Jewish rabbis believed. And so if the Jewish rabbis believed it to him, that's gospel, you know, to that's how he interprets the passage. And that's coming out of his Jewishness of being, you know, a, a Messianic Jew and that. I know why they would believe that, and that will probably come up when we come to another passage here in chapter 25. When we come to the question, and I'll throw this out now so you can start thinking about this. If the tribulation is three and a, is seven years in total, and we know that the abomination of desolation takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation period, why is it that in chapter 25 we're going to be told referring to Christ's return, not to the rapture, that nobody knows the day or hour in which it will occur. Does it not make sense? Okay, Jonathan, you're a pretty analytical guy back there. And if I tell you the abomination of desolation takes place, and 1,260 days after that, the tribulation is over and Christ is coming back. Do you think you could probably figure out if you knew what date the, the abomination of desolation took place? You could probably figure out the date that Jesus was going to come. That's why some people try to take that passage and turn it into a rapture passage. But it's not. Matthew 24 and 25, we're not talking about the rapture. We're talking about. So, just how do we solve that particular problem of interpretation? That's what I'm saying. They may be saying, well, you know, because the days have been shortened, but nobody on earth knows they've been shortened, they won't know when the day or the hour was. And uh, that, that may be what they're saying and what they're hinting at. And that certainly is an inventive way to solve the problem that is there. But we'll talk about that problem. They'll give you something, you know, that's your assignment. You come up with a solution as to how they will not know when that's going to occur if we agree that there are 1,260 days from the abomination of desolation. Because I know any, you know, there there got to be guys that are going to have a mind like my mind would go and say, okay, I can figure this out. This happened, this is where it's going to occur. Yes. Then Satan will be bound. Right. For a thousand years. Right. So those three are kind of like an unholy Exactly. That's exactly what they are. Remember, Satan is the great counterfeiter. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You got the first beast, the second beast, and Satan. Will we see the Antichrist? Not me. But will the Antichrist and the false prophets come back, or they like done? No, they're done for. They're in the lake of fire. They ain't getting out. 
I shouldn't say ain't. They are not getting out. <laughs> I'll correct myself right now for that, okay? They aren't getting out. Yes. Yes, it would be that, that way because they will be observing the Sabbath. You know, there are many Jewish believers who still observe a Sabbath day. So, and since God is turning his attention back to the Jewish nation, they're also going to be celebrating their various feasts. They're going to be doing their sacrifice. Remember, not all the Jewish people will be saved until the end of the tribulation period. So even among those fleeing, there will probably be some who aren't believers yet, but they're going to tag along with the believers who are going to get out of town. And they might be very strict observers of the Sabbath. Okay. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we are just amazed at how the consistency of different men inspired by your spirit writing and how it all lines up with one another, Lord, and how it all comes together because you're the real author of the book. And we pray that you will give us understanding, give us wisdom in being able to interpret your word. And help us, Father, that we might do so out of love for your word and out of love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, everybody, for being here.